0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America.
1: Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelis Hernandez, a national reporter here at The Post. Today in our Race in America series, we're joined by Cristina Garcia, author of the new book, Vanishing Maps. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's get started. And I'm going to fully confess here. I read Dreaming in Cuban uh, when I was uh, at the tail end of my high school years. And this is a distinct pleasure for me. And now having gotten a chance to read Vanishing Maps, uh, Christina, this book picks up about 20 years after Dreaming in Cuban, which came out in the early 90s. Why did you want to write this book?
0: Well, it it kind of... um... It, it, it kind of tapped me on the shoulder after all these years. I wasn't expecting to write any, any kind of follow up, but I ended up adapting, a, I ended up adapting Dreaming and Cuban as a play. And then I got reacquainted with all those characters and they began hounding me for a sequel, as it were, <laughs> so that's how it came about. I literally had no intention when people would ask me, well, what happened to so-and-so, or did Celia die walking into the sea? I would just shrug my shoulders and go, I, I don't know. My
1: guess is as good as yours. Hopefully not spoil anything, but, you know, Celia does get plucked out of the sea in Vanishing Maps. Your characters, and one of them, <laughs> your characters include Ivanito, a drag queen in Berlin, Pilar, a sculptor in Los Angeles, Irina, successful businesswoman in Moscow, and Celia, of course, now in her 90s in Cuba. This is an eclectic group of relatives. Where do you draw inspiration from? Well, honestly, I feel like um, I've always tried to expand what
0: it means to be Cuban, and that includes the ever-growing diaspora, multiply hyphenated Cubans, uh, Cubans who got caught up in eastern europe and soviet union after the fall of the soviet union i mean there there's so many cubans in the world Uh, someone told me recently that they were in egypt and the guy renting camels was cuban so i'm just telling you the stories are endless and this whole notion that it's either on the island or in miami is just only part of the story so i'm dedicated to expanding the margins of of those
1: stories well, I, I actually meet quite a few Cubans at the southern border. Maybe your next book is about Cubans at the U.S.-Mexico border You're and the ways in which right. they
0: remake I, their I lives. I cousin moved there, uh, so
1: definitely, yeah.
0: Where are you, in El Paso? or
1: I'm actually based in San Antonio. It gives me access oh, okay. to about five different border cities, so yeah. uh, it, it's a fascinating place.
0: <laughs> I lived in Austin so- for a while uh, teaching, so I'm yeah I mean, before Texas took this kind of crazy turn i'm I was hugely fond of the place, so that's
1: awesome. Well, getting back to the book at the center of the book at the story is Celia, right? the matriarch of the del Pino family who's still living in Cuba. What did you want the reader to take from Celia, who has quite a quite an arc here in vanishing maps?
0: <laughs> Celia Celia is ninety years old at the opening of of this book and for those familiar you don't have to have read dreamy and cuban to read this but the one thing that uh you're quickly brought up to speed on is that she had a a huge romantic fling with this married spaniard in the 1930s well now his wife has died she's been dedicating some decades to the revolution and they get back in touch and he convinces her to go visit him in Spain and and no small amount of mischief ensues. Uh, so I have these nonagenarians picking up where they left 66 years ago. And I have to say, their scenes were the most fun for me to write. Um, and I remember ages ago when I was writing about women, super sensual and sexy in their 50s, I was in my 30s writing these women. And I thought, yes, you know, when they You know, I thought of that as old, but now since I am now on Medicare, I'm thinking nineties, I'm looking ahead (laughs) and I think women can live fully, um, throughout, throughout life. And Celia is for me, a perfect example of that. I mean, she's in many ways, um, my, my Shiro. Yeah.
1: You uh, you weave bits of, yeah, no, she's she's fantastic. For those of you who haven't read the book, it's quite a character to sink into. But you weave bits of magical realism in your work. For example, Ibanito's dead mother, Felicia, remains a large character in Vanishing Maps. And your writing has been compared to the legendary Gabriel Garcia Marquez. What do you make of that comparison? Oh, that that's... That's very generous. Although I do enjoy sitting next to him
0: on the shelves of bookstores and libraries, I feel like, you know, maybe I can breathe some of that air, you know, some of the some some of the fumes from his um some of my favorite novels of his, like The General in His Labyrinth or Love in the Time of Cholera. I would be so lucky to have that informing. Uh, my perspective my sensibility um but yeah i i um i do i do love these fantastical opportunities that present themselves i don't go looking for them i'm not looking for magical realist opportunities but sometimes the more you delve into reality the more it, it extends almost into this otherworldly realm and i certainly don't hold those moments back and i feel like it's an important part of how we live, how we think, what lives inside of us, and what we project. Uh, and ghosts, I think, are for me
1: anyway, a part of that. I wanted to ask you specifically about Ivanito's halo, just because you know it's something that stayed with me through the reading of the book. Like, what, what for you represents that halo? And and for the sake of the audience, uh, this is one of the main characters, Ivanito, our drag queen in Berlin, who has a halo for most of the book yes which his mother
0: his dead mother has uh, burdened him with for the duration of the book for most of the book it's funny i, I the halo just kind of came up and then i was doing A Q&A with a friend of mine in at the at brooklyn center for fiction and he said that halo i said he said that's how i feel about my mother she expects perfection from me and i can never live up to it and it keeps tightening on my skull and now every time I speak to her, I think about that halo, and so I thought, yeah, that that works. I'll take that. But you know, there's this this sense of 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 wanting to be perfect for your parents, always falling short, and yet the halo is still. It's 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 the kind of interjection that we we end up talking to ourselves about. Represented, I think, by the halo to some degree. But everyone will have their own
1: their own interpretation, I hope. <laughs> well, you were several months pregnant when with your daughter when you wrote Dreaming in Cuban or when it was published, and then it received overwhelming positive praise. When you look back at that time in your life, what was that experience like professionally and personally? Oh, my. Um,
0: I don't remember much. <laughs> I was in that... That early post-child, you know, that post-birthing, postpartum craziness, and I and I had no idea. I was utterly unprepared for it, and I'm happy to say now that I have a thriving thirty-year-old here in New York where I'm visiting her. But I, I just, um, it, it was the, the biggest challenge of my life because it interrupted absolutely everything I was. I, I was completely un—I—I—I uh, I, I could not be in in any kind of civilized company at that point. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> it was just—I—I I became this feral creature, you know, just nursing and feeding and and and—but um, so worth it. She's one <laughs> of my
1: closest friends now. She's adorable. Yeah. Also, in the past few years, Dreaming in Cuban was banned in some US public schools over what di- some districts said were sexually explicit passages. What did you make of this?
0: What else is new? You know, I mean, it, it just feels like there is such a long and sordid history of book banning, not just in this country, but in other, um, other countries and other times and Mostly under authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning regimes, and it it just it just feels like a way to, I mean that that just seems like the best way to get your kids curious about the books that they can't read. Um, not that I'm advocating it, of course, but I think it's a sad commentary that this this sort of policing goes on about art, about culture, about stories. Um, from which we can all learn. I mean, I, I found reading books as a kid saved my life, you know, and you never know whom you're denying by banning these books uh, for kids to see themselves, for see the possibilities for their own lives. Um, and also to build empathy and get in the bloodstreams of others very different from themselves. I think that's absolutely crucial uh, for, for growing up and for continuing to grow up as adults continuing to evolve how did books save your life books saved my life because in through books i was able to find space just for myself uh, for dreaming for escape for Stories that contradicted the life I was leading and the expectations that were set on set upon me, and so for me it was it was like when kids have a hiding place that was mine, you know. And sometimes uh, that's that's what kept me um, kept me curious, kept me engaged, and kept me out of trouble <laughs> because I could say no, I'm doing my homework. I would stick a book behind my. You know history notebook or whatever and and escaped having to do chores my parents you know like many immigrant families had their own business and so we were expected to work there pretty much every waking hour that we were sleeping or in school so it was it was my way of of determining some of my own time
1: Well, you started your career as a journalist, correct, and later as a bureau chief for Time Magazine. What compelled you to start writing fiction and to make that transition? Right. Are you thinking about that, Adelisa? (laughs) A
0: little bit, a little bit. (laughs) What what you got in your drawer that we need to read? (laughs) Um, Anyway, um... Well, I was, uh, yeah, I was in Miami as the Miami bureau chief for Time Magazine for a couple of years when I just found that the extraordinary stories that I was coming upon, having to report on, etc. were just, it was too confining uh, to write them in 150 lines, uh, or maybe a little longer if I was lucky. And, uh, and so I just, I just began uh, kind of dabbling on the side, mostly with poetry initially, and um, and I credit poetry with with just uh, this. I, it was I can I can liken it to falling in love madly was what happened with me with poetry, and and then that that engagement and that surrender to to language that wasn't who what when where in a, in the progression that I hit come to learn and master, uh, was absolutely liberating for me. And in fact, Dreaming and Cuba, my first novel, began as a poem about a nest of crazy women. And then I it just kind of got out of control.
1: <laughs> well let's talk about Dreaming and Cuba. You you've called it it's one of the most autobiographical novels that you've written and I wonder about your family and your family members whether they see themselves in some of your characters and does their reception at all influence your work?
0: Well Dreamy and Cuban definitely as you said is the most autobiographical as I admitted reluctantly um but but um yeah but so the the seeds for every character there uh have have a basis in real life characters in my family. And the person I was most afraid of was my mother. Um, <laughs> she who was the kind of the lord of this character, this sort of anti-communist, uh, anti-communist bakery owner in Brooklyn who vowed to fight communism with her crullers and her sticky buns, you know. Um, and so I did everything. I was getting nervous as it was, as it was moving toward publication and I kept kind of hold the press, I wanna like, Give her orthopedic shoes, or I want to give her a wandering. I mean, I tried everything to disguise her, but of course, she recognized herself. And when I got the dreaded call from her, like a month or two, I forget after the book came out. Uh, to my utter surprise, she considered Lord This, the character who was based on her and whom I was desperately trying to disguise. She considered Lord this as the heroine of the novel. So go figure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Go for like, i don't know i was like get out of that one who knows you know. um. <laughs> well yeah no and, and what about your other family members i mean, do they, do they say, have they said anything you know to you in the past couple of decades about who those characters are or what you should do with them well
0: no not so much but but i think what happens now with family is no one wants to tell me anything. Or if they do, they preface it by saying, well, don't, I don't want this to end up in one of your books as if I have nothing else to write about except them. You know, there's also a kind of solipsism that's going on here that, and, but, but, you know, fiction has the strange capacity to supplant the facts with story, with the story you made up. And so, uh, even things that are, are far departed from maybe what inspired it ends up becoming the last word. I, I kind of like that myself, but they don't like it so much. <laughs> but whatever, I'm not writing—you know—I'm not writing for them, and I'm not writing strictly about them. You know, my work has gone far afield. You know, to 19th century Cuba among the, the Chinese the Chinese there. I wrote a book that's completely set in Berlin, here in Berlin, which is all voices, mostly elderly voices who, who are remembering uh, World War II. I mean, I, I kind of go where my interests take me, where my curiosity insists upon closer looks.
1: One of the things that's clear about you know the Del Pino family as they move about the globe is that there's still this like incredible pull to Cuba and how it sort of lives in the background. Is that how Cuba is for you? Is that how it lives in your imagination?
0: Yeah, there is this title pull I can't quite escape. I mean, I have written books. I don't think I've written a single book without at least a couple of Cubans, you know, walk on parts. <laughs> but, um, But of course, I grew up I grew up in this politically charged atmosphere. My family was divided bitterly over the Cuban revolution. And so that, that shouting match, I mean, I grew up under that shouting match and, and the trickle down effect of, of these big historical seismic events. And so for me, um, I am interested in the intimacy and intricacies of the stories of those kinds of fallouts. Um, on the intimacy between sisters and how that's affected between generations um, and and not just uh, the fallout from the Cuban Revolution but the fallout from say the collapse of the Soviet Union how all of Eastern Europe changed how Germany was reunited what happened in Vietnam all of these things fascinate me I, I studied not English or creative writing in college and grad school I did Politics, international affairs, economics, so that informs everything. I invite the world into every pa- onto every page I write.
1: Speaking specifically though about the Cuban diaspora and and those stories, uh, do you think that those stories and the many different iterations of them are aren't so mainstream or typical or well known? I think they're
0: less well known. I think. Uh, I think common conceptions and perceptions of what constitutes Cuba and Cubans and Cuban-Americans is fairly limited but very outdated. I mean it's not no longer just those who remained on the island by choice or force and not just those living in Miami but it is this sort of ever growing and global and complex diaspora that is um that is enriched and expanded by multiple hyphenations living in places far afield, um, that altered profoundly identity and allegiances. And and that and and, and that's what I'm interested in, in, in questioning how far does that go and are even these terms and ideas about identity already outdated with what's what's been going on on the ground for for decades now
1: well and speaking to that the the title of your book vanishing maps what was what was the idea behind that is it speak to sort of the the dissolution maybe in the imagination of borders and, and the way they separate people
0: Yes but I, I also think of that as an internal process you know the maps that I grew up with internally as well as externally have changed so much uh, in the last in the last six and a half decades um, who could have imagined uh, who could have imagined the interconnectedness say of Cuba and the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc to the extent that, so many Cubans went to study. I had a cousin who studied in Moscow. His first wife was Russian, and I have a distant cousin named Vladimir. You know, I mean, so so much global upheaval and dislocation and migrations. All of these things are, are utterly fascinating to me, and um, and make us all question like, what what does it mean? What does a border mean? Um, internally as well as externally. And I'm interested in those transgressions, those borders, you know, transversing and transgressing those borders of what people have neat ideas about, you know, even concepts of time, or the, what's the difference between me and you, or the difference between a Cuban-German and a Cuban-Californian. Um, and, you know, my own daughters, part Japanese, part Jewish, part Cuban, part Guatemalan, and what are her allegiances? You know, I think I think growing up it was to the clarinet and it was to other readers. She's now an editor in New York, but I mean it's not identity the way we grew up with identity when it was still, at least I grew up in New York, when people still asked you, well, where are you from? And what they meant was, where are you people from? And And it was usually a fairly simple answer. It wasn't, it wasn't my daughter's answer, not yet, but that is more the norm, I think.
1: Well, what is your hope for the next generation of Latino, Latin authors uh, coming up now? Well, I see this extraordinary explosion happening
0: right now, and um, you know, when, when my first book was published in 1992, we were we were not that many yet in number. Uh, There were quite a a few maybe um, relegated to sociology shelves, but but now there's this extraordinary plethora of voices from every corner of the whole pan-Latinx and Latin American worlds. And and not only that, but also in terms of genre, we've got literary fiction, of course, but we've also got YA novels and we've got sci-fi and horror stories, and just like every just like everyone else, right? And I and I remember saying at some point that in the 90s that our literatures, our stories are going to be reinventing and reshaping. Mainstream narratives, which I think they're in the midst of doing right now, so I do think of this as a kind of golden age. Not that there aren't problems with publishers and uh, a gazillion things, but I do feel like we are, we are um, in the midst, or at least at, at the beginnings of a of a golden age where uh, in- inclusivity is becoming more the norm.
1: Well, finally, um I were close to reaching the end of our time, but I was curious about what the best professional advice you've ever received, particularly as you made that transition from journalism to to fiction writing.
0: Um, the best advice that I received mm-hmm. uh, I mostly got keep your day job uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> I can't. This is terrible, but I can't remember anyone encouraging me to break away from my journalism career and do something as out there. I mean, I come from a very mercantile clan. So this idea of having a writer in the family possibly came hard, hit everyone hard. They weren't sure what was going on. And, and, um, So I think I just had to take my own advice, which is, what the hell? (laughs) I think that was the main advice. What the hell? What have I got to lose here? I can always circle back and do something, um, something else if I have to. But why? I mean, I, I feel like writing novels, for me anyway, is the ultimate freedom of expression.
1: You didn't have anyone try to stop you, did you?
0: I'm not bodily. <laughs> <laughs> or but say, yeah, no, this is
1: not for you.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, even now I'm thinking, boy, am I going to keep writing? Or are there other things I might want to do? everyone, Everyone is going to issue an opinion on what they think your life should look like. So you might as well listen to your own self, your own eight-year-old self. Like, what do you want to do? And is there enough play involved? And that and that's and that's why I listen to you, my eight year old self.
1: Well, oh, Christina Garcia, unfortunately, we are out of time, but so we will have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and sharing. Uh, very much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for your interest.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's Race in America an Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.